So welcome back. So Bill asked me a question at um, the break. He said, are there any other like works that we know from this time? Or is everything that we know, you know, this canonical stuff? And as it happens, there was a person named Ashvagosha, who was a poet. And he lived around in the first century CE. So around year 100. So that's pretty, that's pretty, you know, far ago and pretty close uh, to the time of the Buddha. And certainly is before the commentaries, which some of the stories I've been reading from. And um, our understanding is, is that he was a Brahmin who converted to Buddhism. And then he wanted to write a poem, kind of an epic poem, um, praising Buddhism. And he did that in the form of a story of the Buddha. And I come to find out a lot of what we, what in the contemporary West, what we think of uh, Buddhism comes from this story that uh, this poet wrote. So um, this was recently retranslated from Sanskrit by Patrick Olivelle, I think in 2009. And um, Olivelle translated this in such a way this could so easily be an opera or this could be Shakespeare. It's very colorful and you're reading this going, wow, what happens next? Wow, really? So it's very different feeling than the suttas, right? This isn't religious teachings. This is maybe art, you know, a poem, a performance, a play, something like this. So it's called uh, Life of the Buddha. That's the English name. Um, it's uh, the Sanskrit name, which you often will see it, is uh, Buddha Charita, B-U-D-D-H-A-C-A-R-I-T-A. And this new translation, it's by Patrick Olivelle. So his last name is like the food, olive, and then L-L-E on the end, if you're interested. But one thing that um, our friend Ashvagosha, the author of this, writes is... He um, embellishes, everything in here is embellished. It's very colorful. When I read it, I was kept on thinking like, oh, this is an opera. Just like how operas are a little bit over the top with their singing and costumes. This is how the story, everything's a little bit over the top. But it's very colorful and engaging. So one thing that Ashvagosha does is he writes um, about the Buddha's wife's response to the Buddha's departure. Right? So far, we haven't um, heard anything about this uh, woman who was the father of uh, the Buddha's son and his wife and how she felt about his leaving. So I thought that maybe we could read some of... This is her words, her voice, and um, I'll set up the scene a little bit, and then I'd like um, two, diff- two people to volunteer to uh, read. Can, I, can we pass these... Um, Around, thank you. Thank you, Kristen. So you'll see that this handout has things on two um, sides. Right now, we're just going to talk about Yasodara's reaction to Gotama's departure. That's all we're going to talk about. Then we'll talk about the other side. So can I have two volunteers who aren't afraid to be dramatic when they read, who aren't afraid to make a story out of it and embellish it? I'm looking at you, Bill, because you're smiling. And, 
Okay, so maybe Bill and and Kim. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. We can have up to five. It depends um, who, how many people want to volunteer. Vasa, did you want to volunteer as well? Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. The horse has a name too, right? Okay, so um, here's some microphones. We can, um, Bill, you can take one. And then maybe Kim, and then um, and then Vasa, can you do the last one? Can you? So, so Bill, can I ask you to do um, the first three stanzas, Kim? Then, yes. And then, and I'll, before you go, though, I'll set up the scene, and then I'll set up the scene for Kim to go. If you could do this thought troubles me and ends with um, in this life or in the next and then Vasa you could do the last one if it's my lot okay so here's the story that um, when the Buddha to be decides that he's going to leave the palace and become a mendicant or renunciant he asks his aide Chana to go with him to help him you know actually there's some versions of the story where he asks the aide to go, and there's some version where he doesn't want his aide to go, his attendant, but the attendant is so devoted to Gotama that he insists on going. And there's the horse, um, Kantika, who is um, described as, you know, this giant horse, this beautiful, pure white, who is also devoted to the Buddha, the Buddha-to-be. And um, they, uh, um, when Gotama decides that he wants to go. The, uh, he gets on the horse, and Chana rides on the back of the horse. So these two men on the horse ride off. But the deities don't want uh, anything to prevent uh, Gotama from leaving. So they muffle the sounds of the horse's hooves. So some stories have that they themselves are put their hands underneath the hooves, or some that they have flowers underneath the hooves. And then the father... King Sudana, because he didn't want Gotama to leave this palace of luxury, had the gates uh, closed in this way that only, you know, ten men was required to open the gates to the city or the palace around him. But the deities intervene, and not only do they silence the sound of the hooves, they open the gates. So off go the Buddha-to-be, Chana and Kantaka, in the middle of the night. We wake up in the morning, and Yasodhara is the name of the Buddha's wife. She is heartbroken, heartbroken. And the story has that there in the palace are all these women musicians and uh, entertainers, and they are heartbroken too. And Gotama's parents, they are heartbroken. There's a lot of wailing and crying and pulling out of hair. Remember, think opera, right, in this version of the story. So... Uh, Gotama says to his attendant and the horse after they get to a certain spot okay you have to go back I'm going to do this on my own and they don't want to go back they want to accompany him they're devoted to him but he makes them go back so then kind of sad and very sad and when I was reading this, I felt sad. Chana and Kantaka, the attendant and the horse, they come back without Gotama. 
And then Yasodhara sees them returning. And here's what she says. And this is Bill's cue. Then Yasodhara spoke up, eyes red with anger, her voice choking by the bitterness of despair and her breast heaving along with her sighs, tears streaming due to the depth of her grief. Where did he go, Chana, the joy of my heart, leaving me as I slept helpless at night? As I see you and Kantika return, where as three had departed, my heart begins to tremble. You have done me an unfriendly act, ignoble and cruel, you heartless man. Yeah, so this is the first rich time that we can see Yazodara really ex- expressing her grief at having her husband leave, abandon her in the middle of the night. So, I could have put more grief and anger into that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Where did he go? <laughs> right? <laughs> we can imagine that. So... Um, and then the, there's, um, in this version of the story, <coughs> that the, um, the, the king has surreptitiously, or maybe not surreptitiously, has sent people to keep an eye on Gotama. So Gotama doesn't necessarily know, but there are people who are keeping an eye on him to make sure that he's safe and that he has enough to eat and that he's taken care of. His father, right, is, wants to take care of him, continue, even if he has left the palace. So they report back that, oh, now he's doing ascetic practices. And then this is what Yasodhara says. This thought does trouble me. What sort of bodily splendor do women there have that for the sake of them he would forsake royal splendor as well as my love and in the forest practice ascetic toil. It's not that I envy his heavenly joys. They are not hard to obtain even for people like me. But I have just this wish. How can I make my beloved not forsake me in this life or in the next? And then we know that she cares about the son too, Rahula. And then she says... If it's not my lot, if it's my lot not to see my Lord's face, his sweetly smiling face with those long eyes, still this poor Rahula does not deserve never to be rocked in his father's lap. So the next page is another story. So the reason why I had us read this is a few. Right Again, this is not canonical. There isn't a religious tradition that is saying this is the canon, this is exactly what happened. But this is, you know, from that era, from year 100, which is where, there, where uh, there's um, still the canon, I'm, let's see, the, some, the commentaries are written after this time. So this is occurring before then. But I brought this here to show that this uh, poet, he recognizes that this was not an easy thing to do to, uh, for Yasodhara, that she um, has a voice and that she cares and that she was angry and upset. Because I feel like often we are, it's, 
easy to imagine, like, oh, back in ancient India, maybe they didn't care about uh, wives or what wives thought. And that may very well be true. But here is a poet from that time is saying that, no, it does, it is part of this story, the response to what happened when Gautama left the palace. So this, um, these lines that we read here, uh, that's related to the story that we're all familiar with, where the Buddha le- leaves um, his wife and son in order to go on to his next life. Now I can see everybody's on to the next page, so I'm going to go to the next, except maybe Kim, right? So I'm going to tell a story, a different story. In this story, as I said earlier, this comes from the Mulasavastavada Vinaya, if that means anything to anybody. And Again, this is a different tradition rather than Theravadan, and this is canonical. For them, this is their, um, their sacred literature, the story that I'm about to tell. And maybe to help you put the Mula Savastravada um, into context, their vinya, and the vinya is the rules of how monastics should behave, that is used today by Tibetans. So that's the uh, Tibetan, contemporary Tibetan, they use this as their vinya. Whereas here in Theravada, we have a Theravadan vinya, the Tibetans use the Mulasarvastavada vinya. So this is um, alive and well. I don't know if this part of the story in Tibet, they use this story or not. I don't actually know. I do know that it's not so common um, in the West, this story that I'm about to tell, and, and we can have a little conversation about why is that. Okay, so here's a story that's remarkably different than the one that we're all accustomed to. So Gautama decides that it's time for him to leave, that he can no longer stay in this palace life. And before leaving, he goes into the chambers of his wife. And as part of a way of saying goodbye, they make love tenderly that night. And a baby is made. Conception happens. And Yasodhara, oh, that night, after lovemaking, each of them have dreams. Yasodhara has troubling dreams. She doesn't understand them. And the Gotama has confident dreams about being a hero. So Yasodhara, she wakes up feeling a little bit distressed by all these dreams. And she says to her husband, don't leave me. And he says, okay, I'll take you wherever I go. That's not the exact quote. It's maybe, I think she says, take me wherever you go. And he says, yes. He agrees. And then later, that same day, he leaves without her. So we're led to understand that maybe he didn't mean, I'll take you wherever I go physically, but I'll take you wherever I go spiritually. This is how we kind of understand it. So Gautama goes forth, becomes a mendicant, whereas Yasodhara stays at home. She's pregnant. As we know, uh, the Buddha eventually practices austerities and becomes very thin. I read you some of the parts in the Theravadan canon about how thin he comes. When Yasodhara hears about this, she becomes, she also practices austerity 
and she becomes very thin. It's not quite clear if she's doing this because she's so upset about what's happening to her husband. She feels like that he is um, not taking care of himself or if she wants to follow his spiritual path. But she stops eating. She's getting to where she's just eating a grain at a time. But she's pregnant. So the pregnancy comes to a halt, doesn't progress. So she does, doesn't, um, the baby doesn't grow. And then finally, the um, Gotama, as he's sitting um, under a banyan tree, has this memory of when he sat under a rose apple tree as a young boy, has this memory of uh, the pleasure of being in the first jhana of the meditative state. And there's this um, two maidens that go to make an offering to the uh, tree deity. And they see Gotama sitting underneath this tree. And they make the offering to him, thinking that he's maybe a deity or linked to that deity because there's something special about him. And these uh, maidens make this offering in the hope of um, being able to bear children. When, Yaz- when um, Yasodhara hears that the Buddha has started eating again, she starts eating again. And then the pregnancy starts to um, then continue. It was, even, um, it was halted, but then it um, continues. And then, the, um, as I said, the five companions of the Buddha, when they see that he's heating, eating, they abandon him. Like, oh, he's reverted to luxury. He's no longer um, practicing. In the same way, when Yasodhara, her pregnancy starts to proceed, and they see that she is now visibly pregnant, her in-laws want to abandon her. Like, what? Gotama left years ago, and you're now pregnant? It looks suspicious, right? So they abandon her, or they want to abandon her. They don't completely abandon her. And then Mara, right, a deity shows up. We can think of Mara as um, less like a Satan and more like a being who just doesn't want people to get awakened. He's, he's fine if people um, have an enjoyable life, have a pleasant life. It's okay for Mara if you even go to heaven. He just doesn't want you to get awakened. So that's the type of being that he is. So Mara um, uh, tells some deities to lie and to go back to the palace and say that, in fact, the Buddha has died, Gautama has died. And Yasodhara hears this and collapses. rise and collapses. But then other deities see what had happened and say, oh, no, 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 no. That, that's not true. That actually uh, Gotama is alive. And then Yasodhara hears that and she's so happy and so overjoyed that she gives birth to, to um, her son. And as it happened, on the eve that night when she gave birth, there was an eclipse of the moon and at that time, they understood a eclipse, an eclipse as the god Rahu covering up the moon. So because the sun was born on this day in the eclipse of the moon, they called him Rahula, after the god of the, that makes the eclipse of the moon. 
I sh- oh, I'm sorry, I missed a very important part here. That the Buddha, um, he, all, he gained enlightenment on that same evening that um, Yasodhara gave birth. So both of them enter into new phases of their life. The Buddha is now an awakened person, and Yasodhara is now a mother. The, um, the Buddha practices, uh, he teaches and practices for a number of years, and I'm not, uh, like six or seven years, and eventually goes back to um, Kapalavatu. When, she, uh, when he returns, um, Yasodhara wants to win back her husband. She feels you know, saddened that he had left. So she gives a love potion. She has a love potion, and she gives it to Rahula, her son, and said, here, give this to your father. So he goes um, to the Buddha, gives him this love potion and, as an offering, thinking that he will um, eat it or drink it. I think it's a food, so that he will eat it. But the Buddha doesn't eat it. Instead, he offers it back to Rahula, who then eats it and becomes completely enamored with his father and becomes completely um, devoted to his father. And we hear later in the story that he refuses to not follow his father and ordains and becomes a monk and eventually becomes an arhat in this story. That's what happens with Rahula. But Yasodhara, um, saddened that she wasn't able to win her husband back this way, then says, well, please, um, I'll offer you a meal in one of the inner chambers of the palace. So that Buddha goes and she tries to seduce him. I imagine in a way that probably many women have tried to seduce men throughout the ages. But it doesn't work. And she's completely distraught completely upset that um, she's lost her husband and now she's also lost her son who is going to leave and follow his father. So she goes up onto the palace rooftop and wants to jump off. It's over. I can't do this anymore. And the Buddha goes up there and talks to her, gives her a Dharma talk, an inspiring Dharma talk, and she becomes awakened. So that is the story of the Buddha, his wife, and his son in the Mulasavastavada Vinaya. What I didn't add in here is that in this text that has this, it um, very much has the idea of karma, that these three people have through lifetimes been traveling through lifetimes together, a husband and a wife and a son, and have been all kinds of things have been happening. And then this is their last last lifetime together. So it's a little bit different emphasis, right? Of as opposed to um, one individual, it's all up to me, all alone, I'm going to do this, as opposed to, okay, here we are kind of as a family, we're moving through lifetimes together. We have different roles. They don't always have the same roles. Um, actually, that may, I think they do, actually. I think there's the Buddha, the Gautama is always the husband in former lives, and Yasodhara is always the wife, and Rahula is the son. So maybe before I go on, I'll ask... Um, 
Do you have some questions or comments? We'll break up into a group and we'll talk about this, but before we get into the smaller groups. Hello. Um, I've also heard Rahula translated as fetter. Is that not correct then? Yeah, so I forgot to make this explicit. So definitely in the Pali Canon, in some of the earlier strata, is... No, I think it's actually in the commentaries. That um, when Gotama hears that uh, he has a son, he does. He feels, he says, oh, this is going to be a hindrance or a fetter to my renunciation. And therefore, he's Rahula is means fetter. So yes, in the Pali Theravadan story, the son gets the name because of fetter. In this other story, he gets the name because of the deity that causes eclipses of the moon. So it's the same, it's the same. You're saying that word is different in Pali. That word Rahula can mean either eclipse or it can mean fetter. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Let me say this. I don't know if the Pali tradition had that um, deity called Rahu, I think it's Rahu. Um, yes, it means both, but whether the Theravans knew had this part of their cosmology that there was a deity called Rahu, I don't, I don't know, because this second version is written a couple hun- or composed a couple hundred years later in a little bit different geography too. It was in mm. northwest as opposed to the northeast. So it seems like Buddha was gone when Rahu was born anyway, right? So he wouldn't have been around to name him, right? According to the story, right? Different version. Yeah. I have a couple of questions. Um, one is, uh, I know roughly the equivalent story of this in the Theravadan tradition, and I want to know where that appears. I realize I don't know. Um, do you want to answer that first? Or? So the story, the... The um, story of the Buddha leaving and then coming back and converting Rahula, that's all been pieced together uh, in a slightly different form, at least the one that I know. I wonder if it appears in one place, or is it pieced together? Yeah. Um, it's not all... You know what? I, it's in the Nadanakata, which okay. is the commentary to the Jatakas. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then my second question, I don't know, uh, Yeah, is this poetic one that we just looked at earlier... Um, since that was before the commentaries, do you think the authors of the commentaries had read it? Oh, excellent question. So I just introduced this new idea about geography. So we also, right, we have time, hundreds of years, and we also have geography. We have these communities that are in the east, northeast, and these communities that are in the northwest. My guess is no, but I don't really know that because I think that the commentaries were probably in Sri Lanka. Um, but they probably were composed in Sri Lanka. Some people would say they were composed in India and brought to Sri Lanka. And then this um, one with the poet, it was in Northwest India. That's our current thinking. I guess one of the things that occurred to me like, is the masculine-feminine balance here. So when did the bhikkhuni order 
Um, and was that before this was written or after, or is that not a... Oh. You know, I don't know that. I wonder, if Kim, if you know this, because you were studying that with Analio. Yeah, I think I can't say that definitively. Um, your notes here say that Yasodara becomes a nun. Yeah. Did, so did she, she actually ordained? Um, so if that was known at the time. Yeah, that's yeah. what I, I think that the Bakuni ordination died out. If I had to guess around year like 1,000, yeah. whereas this is like year one, what? The, um, so this is the second century. Yeah. So that's, that's my estimate. I'm not sure. So, um, there's, um, I'm trying to think what's the, the best way. Why don't we break up into um, groups of three, and why don't we um, break up into, uh, and you can talk with people that you haven't met with before. And here is the... Um, You can talk about which story is more meaningful for you. Which story is more impactful? You don't have to tell your deepest, darkest uh, No, okay, sorry. Of the Yazodara story. So I'm assuming that I did talk about this departure in general where he, um, the one that we're probably more familiar with, where he leaves his wife and son behind and goes off and goes forth and Rahula does eventually um, ordain. There's kind of that story. And then the one that we have a little more detail on right here on the, the, that's in the, um, the Mula Savastavada Vinya. And if you don't feel like you want to talk about what's more meaningful for you, you can talk about what do you think is, would be more um, impactful for a contemporary Buddhist person. You can approach this as kind of generically or for you yourself. But these two different versions of the departure story and uh, Yasodhara. So if you want to break up into groups of three, and we can talk about that. Thanks. Okay, so we had a little bit of time to kind of discuss uh, these two different stories. Would anybody like to talk about comments that they have about these two different versions of the departure and Yasodhara's role? While I fiddle with my microphone. (laughs) Maybe this. Maybe I'll. Um, oh, were you going to say something, Robert? Or, or? Exactly to fill in the void. <laughs> I think we all agreed. Uh, you know that the the second story was the quote better story for um, modern Buddhists. But uh, your question was which one impacted you most, and so 
So there's different reasons why something might impact you. Since I own a horse, and the first story was dramatic, and I like opera and reminded me of Renaissance painting, it's not that I thought it was a better or worse story. It just impacted me very strongly. It has visual imagery. And so, so that, yeah, there's what's impactful and then what we think is a good or appropriate story. So the consensus on that was the second. Thank you. <laughs> right, right. Um, after I sent you guys off, I thought, like, oh, maybe I should have given a little more clear directions. But I appreciate what you're saying. Like, there's, like, we all appreciate a good story, right? When we can imagine that... Um, you know, storytelling was a big part of uh, ancient India. You know, that's they didn't obviously have television and books and radio or things like that. So it was a good story in that way, yes. Well, first, kind of a technical question. Um, when this was written, was that before Mahayana and... Theravadan traditions developed separately or Vajrayana? I mean, so was this from before that? No, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily before. I think um, we'll get a little bit of technicality. So Mahayana Buddhism, which is the Buddhism of Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, and they have a little bit different uh, some of them are wildly different. Um, it started in India before this time, but was it really flourishing and taking off at this time? That I don't know. I do know that a few hundred years later, on the other side of the Himalayas, it was um, taking off. But earlier, I can tell you it existed, but whether there were a lot of practitioners and what it was like, I can't. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering how this particular vinya got into that stream. Yeah. A part of it is the location. It's close the northwest is closer to the Silk Road. And at this time this is how um Buddhist teachings were getting into China and into um and then of course later uh, Japan and Korea. And the, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that um, this story, what we have is, uh, no, I'm not going to, it's actually what I was going to say is wrong. I think we have it in Sanskrit. I'm, we may only have it in Chinese. Now I can't remember. Because this is, is true for many, many, many Buddhist, um, not not the Pali Canon, but so many other uh, Buddhist um, scriptures, we'll use that word, were actually preserved in Chinese. They were written or composed in Sanskrit. but And then they traveled through the Silk Road up into China where they got translated. And just the weather is different in China is part of it than in India. Things decompose faster in India. And in China they had a little bit different um, relationship to texts and things, so they preserved them in a way that wasn't preserved in India. Okay, thanks. Yeah. And then with regards to the stories, um, I realized I struggled more with the second one. Um, One of the mm, perceptions for me was that the Bodhisattva Buddhist is much more about the individual effort 
you know, like somebody goes out and through their own efforts becomes enlightened. Whereas the other one was much more about relational, you know, that one doesn't practice for oneself alone. And, you know, even if you separate yourself from your family and decide that you're going to do this, that there's things that are going on with other people that... um, that might be sort of, I, I mean, in my mind, is unintended consequences, both positive and negative. And so I, I realized that, for me, there was, going into Buddhism, a certain having to separate from my family in terms of religious ideas and certain cultural... I mean, like the whole idea that you're going to go from going with the stream to swimming against the stream, you know, is, is very, how do you say, how do you tell the people that you grew up with that the way they're going isn't the way you want to go? Yeah. And so to me, that's, that story is really about the fact that it does, that sooner or later you have to reconcile with your family about what path you've taken. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think there's probably many of us in one way or another that can relate to this, that uh, probably many of us in this room are converts, right? We come from some other tradition or no tradition and find ourselves here. And in some way we had to leave family, friends, something behind. Maybe not leave them behind, but, our, you know, it is it is kind of a type of renunciation of some type. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Oh, Robert, yes. I, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to ask the question uh, because I didn't have the hearing assist device on in the, in the beginning and I couldn't really hear very well. Sorry. Did you say that this second story comes from, from the Vinaya of the Tibetans or a different Vinaya than the Theravada Vinaya? It's a different Vinaya than the Theravada. I, it's, and I know, and it's the Mula Sarvastavadan Vinaya, and that's the Vinaya that the Tibetans use. But oh. when what I don't know is, do the Tibetans, so let's say this, so the Vinaya is a collection of texts that have two things in them. They have rules, Patimoka, and they have stories in them. It's mostly rules, but there are some stories. I don't know this. Somebody knows this. I don't know this. Today, do the Tibetans just use the rules from that vignette, or do they use the rules and the stories that would include this story? I see. So I don't know if their version of the Buddhist life story includes this with Bhat Yasodhara. I see. We'll have to ask okay. the next uh, Tibetan scholar or practitioner Good. that we meet. Thank you. Bill. So yes, the second version is a better story because it brings in Yasodhara and and character development is better and more back and forth. So more dynamic, uh, holds your attention better. But the traditional version, I think, ultimately is more important to me because... um, and sorry to say it this way because his wife and son kind of drop out of the picture, but in a way, that's the point. I think what they're saying is is to uh, make the decision to 
leave the worldly life behind and to go for true or full enlightenment is such a radical decision that um, uh, it, it may mean making a break and um, a, a, a wrench. So, um, so, uh, so all the stories about the back and forth in the alternate version, that kind of diverts your attention away from what is the main point, which mm. is the decision to go all out for enlightenment. So, uh, which I think relates to what you were saying, Jim. So, yeah, the, or the maybe the the story that maybe we're more accustomed to really emphasizes renunciation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The second story illustrates compassion, that Buddha had compassion for his wife and his son and didn't just leave not considering how it was affecting them and how they felt. So I like that story for Mm -hmm. that point. Mm Does anybody have have an idea that um, if somebody was interested in Buddhism, you know, they grew up in the Judeo-Christian, socialized in that way, which story would you be more apt to tell them? Or maybe they're both, maybe there isn't a preference for one. The second. The second story. So um, for me, I I appreciated this partly because I'm a woman, and I appreciated there's honestly there's not a lot of women in this Buddhist stories, and I liked oh here's a woman who has this who exists and something happens, and so just for that reason alone, I found it kind of valuable because earlier we were talking about exemplars being inspired, and I'm. I definitely am inspired and hold the Buddha as an exemplar. But for me, just as an individual, something about there being a woman in there is uh, inspiring. And also, you know, Yasodhara, she um, becomes awakened, but she's a householder. She's a mother. She has a son. So this story um, also kind of highlights right, these parallel paths, the renunciant path and the householder path. And in this version of the story, they both um, end in awakening. So it's, you feel like there's less of a choice that has to be made. But Yasodhara, I mean, she certainly has her difficulties, right? She stops eating and collapses when she hears that her Gautama has died, these things, right? So it's not a piece of cake for her. Yes. I think the end of the second story exemplifies the middle way where they both come back together and their son joins the father in practice, but it's not that strong asceticism that he had before. Not that strong Strong asceticism that he had before. Well, he does then, I think he does, he doesn't stay with the family. After this, Gotama leaves and then continues on teaching. 
So this is, he just goes back to Kapilavatu, um, visits his family, visits the Shakyans there, and on his travels, as he did, is when his uh, travel and teach. So, does anybody have some last comments that they'd like to make about this? Maybe I'll ask a question that I asked myself when I stumbled upon this. Why haven't I heard this before? I was like shocked. Like, what? Where? What, where is this? How come I never heard this story? Right? It's canonical. It's not in the Theravadan, but you know, some Buddhist traditions clearly think it's important. But I haven't heard about it. Does anybody? want to offer any ideas? I mean, I don't have an answer to this. I can tell you that it, um, I'm trying to think right now. I tried to look for the, I'm basing this, I put on here, from um, secondary source, something that John Strong wrote about what's in the video. I myself have not read this firsthand. I couldn't find it in English, English translation. I think it's been translated into French. It's been a number of languages, but not English. So that in itself says something. Like, it just hasn't been translated into English yet. I, I had heard about Yasodhara practicing austerities at the same time. Never heard it this way, that, like, that the pregnancy stopped. And then, I mean, I don't think that's medically possible. Our group was talking about that. <laughs> yes, I don't so, think it is either. <laughs> but, I mean, it might be cool if maybe she had Rahula and then maybe she did some austerity. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to believe. But, but somehow I had heard that. So I don't, I'm not sure why where I heard that or I was part of a Zen tradition maybe have you been Theravada all the time or yeah yeah so, so the Mahayana they have a yeah. little bit uh, different version and so they yeah. may be um, drawing from this more yeah maybe that's why yeah okay so let's move on to a little bit like what was the Buddha like I mean what was he like would we recognize him if we saw him if we were alive at that time? How did other people describe him? What was he like after he was awakened? And so we have um, a few examples where people um, have described like encounters they have with him or they describe his um, appearance or his behavior. So um, again, let's do this where we have some people reading um, for us. Um... I feel like um, I'd like to have a speaking part in this. Um, so I'll, I'll pass these out, and then we'll see how many people want to who want to read them. Thank you, Jim. So what are, is on this handout are um, excerpts from three different suttas that all take place um, describing the Buddha, or describe, um, two of them describe encounters. I guess all three of them are encounters. So we're going to start with this side that has the title, What Was the Buddha Like? 
and the first person the Buddha meets after his awakening. And would somebody like to read the first paragraph and the last paragraph? And I'd like to read the ones in the middle. Oh, no, let's have somebody else. Who wants to read the one in the middle? That's right. Who wants to be the Buddha? The Buddha is speaking in the middle. The, for the three uh, that are in stanzas. So who would like to be the narrator? Or you want to be the... Uh, Beverly's going to be the Buddha. Excellent. And who would like to be the narrator? Oh, you don't want to be the narrator? So, and, wait, is this all within the first section? or Yes. Okay, so, so uh, the verses, am I reading the three verses in the middle? Yes. Okay. And then, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't know. Max, thank you, Max. Um, so, Max, it's perfectly 100% okay, okay if, you perf- if you butcher these poly words, right? Because they have names in there. You can pronounce them however you want. It doesn't, um, we don't care exactly how it goes. Oh, you're right. But um, you're right. We so can more you can be Buddha. the Buddha who speaks in prose. You're the Buddha who speaks in verse. And then um, then come back and you'll be the Buddha who speaks in prose at the end. And this is actually how the suttas are. Very Not all of them, but many of them are prose, verse, and then prose, and then verse. And often um, conversations with individuals, important to people, are in prose. So everything, I'm sorry, are in verse. Everything else will be in prose, and then a, an important conversation is in verse, just like we see here. Okay, so we'll start with the prose. Um, then monks, when I'd stayed at Uravela, as long as I chose, I set out to wander by stages to Benares. Between Gaia and the place of enlightenment, the Aj- Ajvaka Upaka saw me on the road and said, Friend, your faculties are clear. The color of your skin is pure and bright. Under whom have you gone forth, friend? Who is your teacher? Whose Dhamma do you profess? I replied to the Ajivaka Upaka in, st- in stanzas. I am one who has transcended all, a knower of all, unsullied among all things, renouncing all. By craving, ceasing, freed, having known this all for myself, to whom should I point as teacher? I have no teacher, and one like me exists nowhere in all the world with all its gods because I have no person for my counterpart. I am the accomplished one in the world. I am the teacher supreme. I alone am a fully enlightened one whose fires are quenched and extinguished. When this was said, the Ajvaka Upaka said, May it be so, friend. Shaking his head, he took a bypath and departed. Right? So here we go. So Upaka notices something's different about this uh, goat to my person, the Buddha. What does he say? He, um, Your faculties are clear. The color of your skin is pure and bright. So he notices something different. And then... <laughs> Here's and I think it's not un um, uncalled for for Upaka to ask him who's your teacher. Like we even contemporary times, right now, if we're Buddhist, if you meet another Buddhist practitioner, you sometimes will ask who's your teacher to kind of get a sense of you know where where they are. Are they in the same tradition or not? But if, I don't. Apparently, Gotama he didn't like that. Is how I'm interpreting this. <laughs> Being asked, he was his teacher. And the <laughs> basically says, "Whatever you say, buddy." And <laughs> exactly, exactly. Upaka at the end, may it be so, friend. <laughs> uh, shaking his head, he took a bypath and 
left, he departed. So here's a case where somebody recognized that the Buddha looked different, but didn't listen to a teaching, didn't um, become a follower. You know, nothing really special happened. Scholars will point to this as being early because why would the tradition hold something like this unless it's close to something that actually happened? Because this is a little bit unflattering, right? That the Buddha wasn't able to um, convince somebody or inspire somebody. So now here's... Yeah, right. <laughs> it's the humor. Okay, so now let's go to the second story. Um, who would like to do the first paragraph? Who would... Um, let's see. Um, yeah, this gets a little confusing because there's a number... Um, of speaking parts here, and it's not so clear. This is how I'd like to do it. So here, you know, the, um, here there's these lines, no Brahman, I am not a deva. Can somebody be um, this person, Dona? Do we have? Do, oh, I don't know if we have his name here. Yeah, his name is Dona. And then there's somebody who is the Buddha, and the Buddha says no. So it starts... Um, there's a little background, and then Dona asks, Master, are you a deva? The Buddha answers, no, Brahman, I am not a deva. And then he goes on, and he talks about this. So who wants to be Dona, who asks the Buddha, and who wants to be the Buddha that says no? You know, I should have put things on here to clearly indicate uh, all the speaking parts. You'll be Dona, so Jim will be Dona. And if. Nope. I'll do this. How's that? I'll say the first few sentences, and it ends with, on seeing them, the thought occurred to him. And you go, how amazing, how astounding. So that's Dona. And then the Buddha is somebody who um, responds. And Vasa, do you want to do that? Okay. So I'll be the narrator here in the very beginning. On one occasion, the Blessed One was traveling along the road between Akita and Settabiya. And Dona the Brahmin was also traveling along the road between Akita and Settabiya. Dona the Brahmin saw, in the Blessed One's footprints, wheels with 1,000 spokes, together with rims and hubs, complete in all their features. On seeing them, the thought occurred to him, How amazing! How astounding! These are not the footprints of a human being. Then the Blessed One, leaving the road, went to sit at the root of a certain tree, his legs crossed, his body erect, with mindfulness established to the fore. Then Dona, following the Blessed One's footprints, saw him sitting at the root of the tree, confident, inspiring confidence, his senses calmed, his mind calmed, having attained the utmost control and tranquility, Tamed, guarded, his senses restrained. On seeing him, Dona went to the Buddha and said, Master, are you a deva? No, Brahman, I am not a deva. Are you a Gandhaba? No. 
a yaka, yaka? No. A human being? No, Brahman. I am not a human being. Then what sort of being are you? The taints by which would cause me to go to a deva state, or become a gandhaba in the sky, or go to a yaka state or human state, those have been destroyed by me, ruined, their stems removed. Like a blue lotus rising up, unsmeared by water, unsmeared am I by the world. And so, Brahman, I am awake. Yeah, so the next page is another um, story. But this is interesting, right? So Dona sees these footprints, highly unusual footprints, and asks uh, Gautama, are you a deva? No. Are you a Gandhava? A Gandhava is a celestial musician. They are attendants to gods up in the heavens. Are you a Yaka? A Yaka is a demon, usually a, a demon. No, no, no. Are you a human? No. This is a little bit surprising. I think it's a little bit surprising. The Buddha says, no, I'm not a human. What sort of being are you? The taints by which would cause me to go to a deva state or a gandhava or a yaka or a human have been destroyed. I am awake. So how do we understand that? If uh, Gautama says that he's not human, he's saying that he's awake. Anybody have some ideas? Yeah, actually, this reminded me, it was like two weeks ago when um, Steve Armstrong was here. I was having a conversation about him, and he was talking about all the different things that we might identify with. And he said, do you identify with yourself being a human being? I mean, there's a lot of other things that he could say, like, do you identify being a man or a woman or a you know, this or that, but he said, do you identify yourself as a human being? So perhaps this is a pointing to even this, you know, not identifying with this body, with this humanness, you know, like maybe that's one of the last identifications that one might let go of. I would guess. I mean, I'm not speaking from experience. This is speculative on my part. Thank you, Jim. So you're saying that he just didn't identify with uh, whatever it means to be a human being. Nice. So you're asking for a response for to the Buddha's declaration, "I am awake." Or and or I am not a human, but you can whatever you feel like uh, sharing. Yeah. Um, so I just take it at face value. I am awake. I am free. I've I've transcended the world. I've I'm not fettered any longer. That type of thing. It's interesting because when you take monastic ordinations, one of the questions is, "Are you a human being?" Or something like that. I'm trying to I remember. You, I thought, are you a naga? What is? What are you asking for? <laughs> this is, can't you see? I'm a human being. Of course, I'm a human being. So, but I'm not awake yet. I that I know of. I see. Thank you, Robert. And I'd like to comment on the "I am awake" 
Um, I, to me, it means that he had clarity, mental clarity that he had never had before. Yes. So here's a second person who encounters the Buddha and is a little bit confused, doesn't even know, is he a demon or is he a celestial musician or a deva? You know, recognizes that he's different and somehow. But I, I think it's, for me, I, was, I thought it was interesting that the Buddha says, no, I'm not a human being. But I like this, okay, so Bill, you're... <laughs> Well, some people here will remember the very, very end of um, the Marilyn Monroe movie, you, uh, Some Like a Hut, where Joey Brown says to Tony Curtis or Tony Randall, uh, nobody's perfect. And, and that's kind of the defining hallmarks of what it is to be human. None of us are perfect. Uh, so we're all flawed, frail. But the, but, so the Buddha still has a human body, born of man and woman. But he's not, has doesn't have those flaws anymore. So, I guess that's what that means. It's not talking about the biology so much. Mm. But so the he psychology. Doesn't, he doesn't have the human foibles or that's, whatever. That's what it must mean, I guess. I see. Nice. Thank you, Bill. Any, any other ideas or something you'd like to add? I think he was taking I think he was taking the opportunity to speak from the as Robert said, from the place that was um, not in the realm where you talk about beings. You know, he didn't define himself as anything in particular, so he was exemplifying the untraceability or the indefinability of one who is awake, of awakeness. Mm, yeah. Nice. He, for some, some reason, I don't, I forget the whole context of this, but he must have felt that that was the most appropriate response to the way this person was approaching him. Yeah, this is. I mean, other uh, times he calls himself human, so. Yes. I don't know if he calls himself literally human, but he acts more in the human realm. But for some reason here, he is, he is not accepting that and is speaking from a different place. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. So this is, I think, a good point. That it's like the context. Like here he's talking to this person, and it just seemed appropriate at that time to say this. To, he goes on to say, right, I don't have the taints, those things that would cause me to behave like a deva, yaga, gandhava, or human. I don't have those things anymore. So it's part of the teaching that he's giving here. And whereas somebody like me, right, I'm pulling out this, this is, uh, there's one more paragraph, but this is almost the entire sutta here. It's uh, not a long, complicated one, but we can see where it's just a Brahmin who's confused. So then um, uh, I'll tell another little story. A lot of storytelling today. So there was um, a Brahmin named Brahmayu, and he was um, older. He was elder. He was 120 years old, and he had a lot of respect from the community. He was a very uh, senior person in the community. And he had heard a good report about Master Gotama. 
And in the suttas, this good report is repeated many times. It's standardized. I don't have it with me. I don't remember it exactly. It's something along the lines of um, he's awakened, he's an arhat, he is um, a teacher of gods and men, and he um, knows the way of ethics and all these kind of flattering things about it. So Brahmayu, this very senior Brahmin, hears about Master Gotama. That's supposed to be very um, have a lot of attainments. So Brahman asks his student Uttara, "Go see if this is true about Master Gotama. I hear that he's traveling nearby." And the student says, "But teacher, how will I know whether it's true? Whether he's really awakened and has all these wonderful qualities?" And Brahmayu says, "You can tell because he will have the thirty-two marks." And and I have taught you the 32 marks. You should know what these are. So Uttara says, okay. And he goes to where the Buddha is, and he checks, does he have the 32 marks? And he does. Has these 32 marks. And so on the back page here, I've listed a few of them. I didn't list all 32. His projecting heels has netted hands and feet, like webbed hands and feet. has legs like an antelope. When he stands without stooping, the palms of both his hands touch and rub against his knees. He has the color of gold. His skin has a golden sheen. His neck and shoulders are even. His teeth are without gaps. He has a large tongue. <laughs> Right? This is kind of an interesting thing, right? For a Brahmin, these are the signs of what uh, spiritually mature, somebody who has a lot of attainments, this is what they look like, is they have these 32 marks. And the Buddha is reported to have these. But if we look at our local Buddha here... (laughs) Yeah... There's, you'll notice that the um, the Buddha that's on this counter that's right here, he doesn't have it exactly. But I notice that the, he's standing. The arms are really long, so that's why. Just as a little bit of trivia, Buddhas um, always have like long ears. Have you ever seen a Buddha that doesn't have long right. ears? But that is not one of the thirty-two marks. That's just kind of a cultural thing. I no, I think Chinese Buddhas have this. Japanese Buddhas, yeah, that's a Thai Buddha there. Yeah, this one is a Thai with the flame coming out of his head is a a sign that this is a Thai uh, one, and that he only has the robe over one shoulder shows that he's from Southeast Asia. Do Do you know the thirty two marks? Is it true? Is one of the marks that the fingers are even? Instead of like this, the fingers are all even. You know, I don't remember them. I, 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 had, I don't have them with me. I had a nun in Burma claim that she remembered a life where she was the, the granddaughter of the Buddha's patron. The woman patron, what was her name? Do you recall? It's on the tip of my tongue. It's not Mahapajapati? No, 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 no the, the lay patron. Anyway... She claimed that she was the, the granddaughter, and, 
And so I asked her, you saw the Buddha? And she said, yes. And I said, what did the Buddha look like? And so she started describing this. She also said he had long ears. His fingers were even, and that he was quite large, a big presence, about 10 feet tall, which is interesting in ancient India. I don't think of people very... I think in the Muslim, but it was, and she went on and on and to tell me these things with all seriousness as though she had actually been there. So I didn't, I mean, maybe she was, who knows? I don't, I'm not questioning it. Okay, now this is maybe. Or I'm not, I'm not saying she's a liar. <laughs> Yeah, right. Maybe the story is very meaningful for her, yeah, whether exactly. whatever the source of it is. Exactly, and yeah. and the statues in in this place where we were in Burma, the Buddhas were ten feet tall with long ears, and <laughs> the thing she described exactly what the statue looked oh. like. <laughs> so I'll just th- I'll just throw out something here. Um, a couple of things, actually. There. Um, when people have near-death experiences and they say that they're seeing other people or beings or gods or something like that, they tend to see what's meaningful to them. Like children will see superheroes and things from comics, like you were talking about, Jim. You know, it's some projection from their mind, perhaps, or something. And then also, to throw in fiction, um, there was this great TV show called Babylon 5 on about 10, 15 years ago, and there was a character in it who always wore kind of a suit. Um, and they were these sort of mysterious ancient beings and nobody had really seen what they looked like. And there was a, a situation that happened where he was going to have to show himself. And uh, he was very worried about this. And one of the human characters said, well, what, you know, who's going to recognize you? And he said, everybody. And when he appeared... Um, Every being in the universe, humans and people from other planets and so forth, all saw this being as their idea of an angel. So humans said, oh my gosh, it's an angel. And people from some other planet that had another idea said, oh, it's a deva or whatever they called it. And so it had this quality of being seen by others as how they saw some kind of a celestial being. So bringing it back to this, maybe the 32 marks, if you believe in them strongly as a Brahmin, you see these in other people. I'm not saying this is true, but I'll put it as metaphorical for the mind projecting uh, certain qualities. It doesn't mean that they objectively look like that. Yeah, yeah. Right, that if we have an idea about what things can look like, we can see that. Thank you, Kim. Okay, so the story goes on. So Uttara sees these 32 marks, and he was supposed to go back and tell his teacher, Bamayu, but instead he decided, suppose I follow the Buddha and see what his behavior is like, not only what he looks like, but what his behavior. So for seven months, he followed the Buddha very um, closely, like a shadow. And he um, came back and reported many things back to um, his teacher. And I've put here a few of them. When he walks, he steps with the right foot first. He walks neither too quickly nor too slowly. This sounds nice, right? This sounds like a spiritually mature person, right? Maybe, you know, I know the Zen tradition has something about the right foot forward. So, but then... He walks without raising or lowering his thighs. Okay, 
I don't, can't imagine that exactly. Shuffle, maybe. I'm not sure. When seated indoors, he does not fidget. When seated indoors, he's not afraid. He does not shiver and tremble, and he is not nervous. This sounds like a spiritually mature person. When he receives rice, he does not raise or lower the bowl or tip it forwards or backwards. He takes his food experiencing the taste, though not experiencing greed for the taste. So I'm not sure how to interpret this about does not tip the bowl, but my my thinking is... I actually don't know. Does this mean that he doesn't pick it up? And does not raise or lower? Or does this mean that he's eating like how our cats and dogs eat, that he's not moving? Right? I'm not exactly sure. You don't raise or lower or tip. Or or maybe he has utensils and he's just over. I don't know. So, Kim? It it says receives, not eats. Does it mean when people put the rice in his bowl, he doesn't lean toward them or lean away from them? There's no greed or aversion in receiving food? Oh, thank you. Um, And I deleted the paragraphs. Oh, so it is about eating. Yeah, it also is about eating, and it's also about water. So we see these three things, and um, I just included here about receives. We see again, he walks neither too fast nor too slow, and he does not go as one who wants to get away. Okay, this makes sense. His robe is worn neither too high nor too low, nor too tight nor too loose on his body. So just right. <laughs> Actually, I'm de- I have to, for in order to get this on the page, I deleted a number of things. And at first, I'll tell you that when I put on here, I put only the normal sounding things on here. And then I thought, oh, Diana, that's a little bit of a bias. So I started to put back in some of the unusual things, but I didn't put them all back in, <laughs> partly because of space and um, other things. But they're mostly it's normal things that we would, um, you know, that you and I could do, but there's also some unusual things in here. And so, would somebody like to read um, that paragraph when he has gone to the monastery to describe how he is as a teacher? When he has gone to the monastery, he sits down on a seat made ready. Having sat down, he washes his feet, though he does not concern himself with grooming his feet. Having washed his feet, he seats himself cross-legged, sets his body erect, and establishes mindfulness in front of him. He does not occupy his mind with self-affliction or the affliction of others or the affliction of both. He sits with his mind set on his own welfare, on the welfare of others, and on the welfare of both, even on the welfare of the whole world. And you, Beverly, you can go ahead and read the last part there, too. When he has gone to the monastery, he teaches the Dhamma to an audience. He neither flatters nor berates that audience. He instructs, urges, rouses, and encourages, encourages it with talk purely on the Dhamma. This sounds like... When I read this, this sounds like the, the Buddha that I have in my mind, right? Somebody who is, uh, has a certain comportment and um, kind of a meditative state and gives 
talks, teaches others with the um, he doesn't flatter or berate them, he instructs, urges, rouses, and encourages them. So the story goes on that Utra, after he sees this, he goes back and he um, tells his teacher, Bamayu. Bamayu says, Oh, okay. So this Gotama is the real deal. I don't remember exactly the word that he said. Oh, he asks him, Is the good report true? And Uttara says, Yes. And then Bamayu says, Then I will go see him. So he goes to. Um, near where the Buddha is, and he asks somebody to um, tell the, uh, make his announcement that he will soon be arriving, Brahmayo does. Then Brahmayo goes, has the, when the, there's a crowd around Gotama, when they see Brahmayo, who is a very senior Brahmin, right, they stand up and make way for him. So Brahmayo walks through this cleared path, goes up to Gotama, and as a prostration, puts his head to the feet of Gotama three times. It's quite astounding, right? Here is the most senior Brahmin who is um, paying homage to the Gotama. And then they have a, a conversation, which is in verse, and essentially the Buddha ends up giving a Dharma talk to Brahmayu, who then, of course, um, has an awakening experience. So, this brings us a question. How do we know who are the people who have spiritual maturity, I'll use that expression, who have attainments, who are people that we should listen to, or have some mastery, or have some adeptness to their, um, to the practice? So, I'm looking at the time. So why don't we, we can just answer this maybe um, as we have been doing rather than breaking up into a group and then we'll go for a break soon because I know it's after lunch and our energy is sagging a little bit. So we'll just say, does this um, uh, give you ideas of what a spiritual mature person looks like or doesn't look like or... Well, I have seen... Hello, hello. Yes. Yeah, I've seen somewhere uh, that you pay attention to who the wise are and how they're defined exactly. I wouldn't know, and also in Buddhism, I'm understanding that there's a lot. Of, there's a strong empirical, pragmatic base. Uh, does it work? Um, those are the two things that come to mind immediately. Yeah, does it work? And so, if somebody who has proficiency in this, it should look like it's working, right? Yes, thank you, Mick. Um, I was struck by the last um, sentence where he neither flatters nor berates the audience. That reminded me of something that um, Tanisara said that um, the, her, the first time she heard Ajahn Chah talk, he said, if you didn't like this Dharma talk, you weren't listening. And if you really liked this Dharma talk, you weren't listening. <laughs> you know, that there was something about, like a, a, an equanimity or something, that it's like somebody that's neither, like, causing 
like a wise person, uh, neither brings sort of like an elation or a aversion, but you know, you just kind of get a sense that this is somebody to listen to. Mm. You know, that isn't about it being pleasant Vedana or unpleasant Vedana in some way. I don't know. That's what came to me. Mm. So it's not just that they're entertaining or charismatic or something like this, but that they have an equanimity or that their listener has an equanimity. Or or maybe both. Or, you know, maybe that... I think the... Well, so the first Dharma talk I ever heard from Gil was the last week of January in 1998 when I came to this... And there was something about his talk, I don't exactly remember what it was, but it was like this sense of, oh yeah, this this is true. Mm. Not like this is really a, you know, I mean, it wasn't like I fell in love with Gil or something like that, or but it was, there was something, some sense of mm, recognizing something true. Mm. Recognizing something true. Let's take a break. So it's 3 o'clock. Can we do 15 minutes? So come back at 3.15, and we'll talk about the Buddha's death, too. Okay. So now we'll talk about the Buddha's death. We talked a little bit about his birth and his life, a little bit, and his the departure. We'll talk about his death. And this um, story is told in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And that is uh, the longest story, the longest sutta in the Pali Canon. It's really long. It has um, lots of different um, vignettes. The first half of it is kind of the Buddha travels to this town and he gives this teaching. Then he travels to this town and gives this teaching. Then he travels to that town and gives this teaching. Then he travels to that town. Then we can kind of see that um, the sense that I have reading this, that here is a person, the end of his life, that um, wants to see as many people as he can before he dies. So in one of these towns, the Buddha becomes quite ill. His uh, very severe stomach pains. And Ananda is worried. But the Buddha doesn't think that it's time to die yet. So he pulls forth all his energy in some way and says, I'm going to, um, I'm going to get better now. And he tells, um, Ananda said, I knew that you weren't going to die. You were so sick, but I knew you weren't going to die because you haven't um, given us any last teachings, any last things to say before you die. And the Buddha says to Ananda, there are no secret teachings. I've already said everything that needs to be said. I haven't kept some things to myself um, only to give to a few people later at the end. I've said everything that needs to be said. And also, there will be no successor. There is nobody that will be the next uh, leader of the Sangha. And he says, I am now old and worn out, one who has traversed life's path 
Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps, so the Tathagata's body is kept going by being strapped up. It is only when I enter into concentration that this body knows comfort. This, for me, is quite touching. He's, um, later he says that he's 80 years old. I can imagine being 80 years old um, at ancient India before they had aspirin. Before they had, right? It's, it's uh, probably uncomfortable. Just a lifetime of um, illnesses or events happening. And then Mara shows up and says to the Buddha, earlier you promised that you would die when you had monks and nuns and lay men and lay women who were accomplished and trained to teach. And that time is now. You have monks and nuns and lay men and lay women who are accomplished, who have attainments, who know the Dharma and can teach. So the Buddha says to Mara, okay, I will die in three months. So he states when he's going to die after Mara asks him. And then he, um, a little bit later, gives his last teachings to the Sangha. See here, I have. Here we go. Monks, I have now taught you things that I have directly known. These you should thoroughly learn and maintain, develop, and constantly put into effect, so that this holy life may endure long. You should do so for the welfare and happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the gods, I'm sorry, for the good and welfare and happiness of gods and men. And what are these things? They are, and then he provides a list of lists. I can give you this later if you're interested. This is um, known as the 37 Aids to Awakening. And what are in these 37? You remember these systematic teaching? Four foundations of mind. I, I can give you a handout later. You don't have to write this down now. Four foundations of mindfulness. Four right efforts. Four bases for success. Five faculties. Five powers. Seven enlightenment factors. And the noble eightfold path. I have taught you these things, having directly known them myself. You should... L- Thoroughly learn them for the good and welfare and the happiness of gods and men. And now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to pass away. Strive on, strive on untiringly. So that's his last formal teaching. He gives this list of lists, which are all about... Um, like I said, I'll give you this handout which um, has the details of them. Four foundations of mindfulness, 
many of us are probably familiar with that, mindfulness of the body, feeling tone, mind states, mind objects. Four right efforts. Prevent unwholesome states from arising. Abandon any unwholesome state that did arise. Develop wholesome states and maintain wholesome states that have arisen. Five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. The seven factors of awakening, we talked about it earlier. Many of you may know the Eightfold Path. Um, Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right uh, meditation, right concentration. So one thing that's noteworthy about this, or maybe I should ask you, what, uh, there's more to this story, but let's just pause here for a minute. Is there anything that strikes you about the nature of these 37 aids to awakening or the nature of um, his last teaching? He says, I haven't held back anything. Everything I've told you are these 37 things, this list of lists. They're not explained in here. This is the end of his life. He's assuming people already know what they are. And he says, all conditioned things are of a nature to pass away. Strive on untiringly. Yes. Max. Hello? Hello? Okay, so I I don't buy it. Well, because I mean, I, I heard once like the Buddha picked up some leaves from the forest and said, you know, this is what I this is what I teach you, but I know all these leaves. So I feel like maybe that is all the teachings he gave, but he also had a different knowledge. Maybe that's more magical. Maybe that's my magical thinking of the Buddha or something. Like a Buddha's mind has has more than that. So you don't buy what is what is it that you don't buy? He says there's no secret teachings and all this kind of oh. stuff. Not that he gave those secret teachings. I see. I see. Right. So, I I, I could see. So that doesn't mean that he doesn't know other things, but he's not saying that, I've told you everything that I think is important. It's the way that I'm interpreting it. Okay, okay. All right. And the other question I have is, why does he he make that deal with Mara then? Like, why is he like, okay, all right, I'll die in three months. (laughs) Yeah, this is a good question. Right, and it comes after where he's saying he's really sick, and he has a bad back. It's, I can't remember if it's here or later where he's talking about his back, and he's eighty years old. And yeah, so why why is Mara? What does Mara have to do with that? I agree. Yeah, because I mean, oh, sorry, can I? Because yeah. earlier you were saying that I heard you say that your interpretation of Mara was, you know, not necessarily like Satan, but somebody who. It creates obstacles in practice. But yet, also it says, I think, in the scripture that after the Buddha was enlightened, Mara still came back and was still, like, messing around. And So I don't really understand this character and, and what his, what's his trip. Yeah, so if we were to interpret it as, an, in, as a uh, psychological force, this is the way that I'm holding it, is that he did say, you know, my work is done. I do have monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen who know the Dharma, who have attainments, and who can teach. 
So that's maybe a, a psychological force that kind of says hey, there's no need to keep on going. And so maybe we slapped the name Mara on it as uh, well. We there. That's a whole question. Like why? Why that's in there? But yeah, I like that. Like part of his psyche. Kind of reminds me of Birdman a little. I don't know if people saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Okay. Anyway. What's that? You hated it? <laughs> well, he was kind of crazy at the end, but there was kind of like a, there, like a Mara, I felt like a Mara type figure, mm. kind of like saying stuff to him mm. like that. Yeah. But he wasn't. I think he had a little bit of a mental thing going on there. Not the Buddha, but the guy. In, I see. You know, so maybe I'll add one more thing. Okay. No, but we'll... Um, I think it's understandable that uh, followers of a religious tradition have mixed feelings about their founder dying. It's sad, or maybe they don't want their founder to be somebody who dies. Maybe they want uh, this idea that there's a transcendent being, somebody who um, is above all these issues and these problems and I didn't share with you that some of the stories about here about um, how long the Buddha could have lived or something like this. That's in here as well. So maybe it's easier, some religious tradition, some religious persons, I think it's easier if we insert a bad guy in there because the Buddha is so compassionate that he would have stayed. He would have continued to teach. It's just because of this Mara person that uh, he doesn't. So there can be a, you know, the religious individuals, we, we can imagine that, but um, put that in there. I, I don't actually know. So Kim, did you want to say something? Well, inadvertently, what I'm going to say is a little different from what you just said. I wasn't aware of that when I was I thought of it earlier. Um, just taking that little vignette about the very last formal teaching that he gave, um, I think it's quite deliberately constructed um, since he he's about to die. So he says all conditioned things are impermanent. So it's appropriate that he gives a teaching on this. My body is conditioned. My mind is conditioned. This is going away. So he's actually making very clear through his teaching that people don't go on forever. Um, but skillfully, he doesn't just drop it and leave people there. Um, he offers the alternative, which is that the Dharma lives on, the Dhamma lives on. And so he gives the, the key, you know, these, this list of lists. This will keep you busy for a while. <laughs> um, I'm going away, but you can strive on, and here's the means to do so. So at the same time that he takes away and says, you know, you've got to remember the fundamental teaching uh, that all things are impermanent, he, with the other hand, gives um, the way to go on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amy? Well, I think um, with Buddha's response to Mara here, he is showing that he's come full circle. When he first left the palace and his wealthy beginnings and went out into the world, he saw a sick person, an elderly person, and a dead person. And they gave him fear. He was afraid. And he wanted to overcome that fear. So he became an ascetic, thinking that 
he wouldn't have to be as caught up in being afraid of those states. And now he's in that state. He's sick, he's old, and he's near death. And you can see he has no fear. Mm. And that's the Dharma. That's the answer to it. If you spread the word and you practice this, you won't have this fear. Nice. So he's not afraid. He's not afraid to die. Maybe I'll point out something here that may not be so apparent because all of us are practitioners and we're kind of steeped in this tradition somewhat right here. But I'd like to point out that the last teachings here are not metaphysical. They are not, um, if you believe hard enough, something will happen or some deity will save you, right? He's not saying that at all. Right? He's saying, here's some practices. Here's some qualities to cultivate. Here are some things to do. And I think that's part of the hallmark of this tradition of Buddhism. It's very much about these uh, tangible uh, things that us as humans can do and can uh, work with. His last teachings are not about anything metaphysical or, I'll just say that, anything metaphysical. So then he goes and uh, Junda the blacksmith offers a meal to the Buddha and his monks. And this meal, um, I like the way that uh, Maurice Walsh translates it. He translates it as pig's delight. And And the reason why he uses that is because nobody really knows what is this. Pig's delight can either be something that pigs love to eat that is mushrooms, or if you're a bourgeois European or something like this, you could say truffles, or pig's delight could be pork that's uh, prepared in such a way that it's delightful. So nobody knows what it is, but you can imagine scholars and Buddhist traditions like to fight about this. It's mushrooms. No, it's pork. It's mushrooms. It's pork. The last... The last it's pork and mushrooms, right? So you can choose whichever one that... Uh, you care about, or maybe you don't even care at all what the last meal was. So he says to Chunda, give me the, this pig's delight and bury the rest of it. Nobody else is able to eat this except me. So he eats the pig's delight. At the end of the meal, he becomes violently ill and he has bloody diarrhea. This, this word is in the Pali, right? This doesn't get more graphic, right? He is really sick in a kind of a way that's it's awful and is messy and dirty, right? It's just bloody diarrhea is an awful way to go. And he announces, I'm going to die tonight. And he takes a nap. He lays down. And he um, had asked some of the monks to make a bed for him um, underneath two saw trees. And he goes after he rises from his nap. And a few things happen. Some people talk to him. and then, But then he goes to lay down behind, uh, under these salt trees. And these trees burst into blossom. Out of season. Ananda, who's been his attendant for 25 years, I think it's 25 years, is grief-stricken. is very sad. 
And he goes um, to the nearby structure, near the forest, and he's on the door frame and he's crying. And the Buddha notices that Ananda isn't around, so he asks, where is Ananda? And the monks say, oh, he's lamenting over at the structure, the building over there. Go get him. So Ananda comes to the Buddha, and the Buddha says, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you? Things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable. They're subject to separation and becoming other. Make much effort, and in a short time, you will be free. And the Buddha makes a bigger announcement to the monks and the, um, some of the townspeople who have gathered near. And he says, What I have explained as the Dharma and the discipline, the suttas and the vinya, will at my death be your teacher. So just as um, Kim was saying, he left the Dharma and the um, and the rules of behavior as to live on after him as opposed to appointing somebody else. And then he asks the monks, are there any questions? I'm going to die soon. Is there anything that you'd like to ask before I go? And nobody says anything. And he says one more time, all conditioned things are of the nature to pass away. Strive on untiringly. And then the story is that he entered into a meditative state, went up through the jhanas, one through eight, then went into uh, Naroda, kind of like beyond the jhanas, came all the way back down to kind of a regular I think maybe down to the first jhana, went up to the fourth jhana, and died. Very peacefully, very much uh, aware of when he was going to die, kind of, uh, present, he had this, uh, still had this ability to meditate in a certain way, even though he was very, very sick. He had felt like his work had been done. He had already told Mara that it had been done. He had given his last teachings. He had his attendant who had been his companion for 25 years with him. He had all these monks around him. And he just very peacefully died. For me, I feel very touched by this. A little bit what Amy was saying, like he didn't have any fear. Not only did he not have any fear, he knew that he was going to die and got all his affairs in order. I didn't share with you, he has a, a few last-minute housekeeping things that he tells the monks before he goes. So, we're just about at the end of the day here. It's kind of an interesting way to end the day to talk about the death. But I want to say, um, maybe I'll share this. I said that I was very touched by this myself, that... Um, as an uh, exemplar, as, you know, this is what's possible, you know, to live your life in such a way that um, when death comes, 
that you can have some peace with it and that you can um, hopefully have people around you right, who care about you as well. So that's my interpretation of it. And maybe, um, oh yeah, so I'd love to hear some of your ideas about this story, about the, of the Buddha's death. I've been asking you guys to do a lot of sharing and I appreciate those of you who are willing to take the microphone. Okay, I'll take the low-hanging fruit. Uh, how did they know what jhanas he was in? <laughs> yeah. So there was a monk who said, Aniruddha, who was present there, who reportedly had this cap- capacity to know other people's meditative states. So it's attributed specifically to one person who had this capacity. So he... Thank you. Uh, and also, so it's not true then, there was something about, he said, be an island unto... He did say that. It is in this. Yes, that's um, near the end. I didn't include it. But he says, uh, be an island unto yourself. Be a refuge unto yourself. Um, Use the Dhamma as the refuge. Something, those words aren't quite right, but it's those three ideas. Be an island unto yourself. Be a refuge to yourself. And use the the Dhamma as a refuge. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. The Pali word is dipa, and it can be translated either island or lamp. Some people prefer the word island. Some people prefer the word lamp. So, so in English, but I think um, scholars like to say it's most likely island, not lamp. But you could translate it as that. Don't we have the saying in Western literature too? Be, be a light unto yourself? I don't know. I'm curious, Diana, why did you choose this subject to delve into and to study and to teach today? Uh, is this particularly meaningful or important to you, the idea of the Buddha oh. and who he was? Yeah, so um, there's, I have two answers about this. Um, one is Gil and I are teaching a graduate-level course on the life story of the Buddha at, uh, in, in Berkeley at the Institute of Buddha Studies. So this is a 16-week course. So we were just like, we're digging in this, you know, and all the suttas. So I'm already doing this. But what I shared with you today is um, lots of it is different than what we're um, doing there. So I'm already doing this work, and I just thought it would be nice to kind of share with the community. But thank you. I also want to say, I'll just share with you, I have a certain ambivalence about the Buddha. Uh, Robert and I touched on this just a little bit, that um, I had this idea of the Buddha's um, as a certain way, and then when I looked in the suttas, he wasn't exactly the way that I thought he was going to be portrayed. And so I'm just a little bit curious about, I don't know, who was he and that uh, kind of story. You're looking at me like uh, you have another question. Well, in... I've done a fair amount of Suda readings, and and uh, so this is getting away from his death. Um, there are quite a few places where two people or 
conspiring. Who is this Buddha? Or we don't believe the things he believes. Let's go trip him up. <laughs> and so true. one of them goes to test the Buddha with a trick question or a hard question. And the, in every single case, the Buddha sees through this guy and just demolishes him. <laughs> basically, and, and at the end, basically calls him a fool. Yeah. It, hard, hard yeah. words. Yeah. And we would, if any teacher tried to talk to us like that today, we would desert him in droves and go find someone nicer. Or a little bit more, um, um, you know, careful or restrained or circumspect in speech. Mm-hmm. What do you think about? I don't. I don't like. So some of it seems rude to me. What do you think? I think um, if you look in the suttas, he's rude. By contemporary standards, he's sometimes rude. But he rebukes people. He calls them foolish. He does these types of things. It's always in the context of teaching, and he wants to get these individuals away from their pernicious views and get them you know, to uh, the view that's going to help them towards awakening. But I'll tell you where I am personally is where you started this whole day today saying something along the lines, Bill, I'm not sure exactly what you said, but it was along the lines of, you know, if this Buddha person is real or not real, is not so important as the teachings. And that's where I am. I feel inspired by the teachings. I love the teachings. I struggle with the teachings. I'm flabbergasted with them sometimes. I, all, you know, I, have, I just have a relationship with them. And the Buddha, I don't know, I feel... <laughs> I have a mixture of feelings about it. Let's say that. We cut him some slack. You know, I I portrayed here, you know, a, a version that there were nice. I didn't. I could have pulled all those suttas where he is a little bit short and rude to individuals. So, um, yeah. No, but I think it's that's part of maybe how um, Buddhism here in the West is, is that we look at our relationship to the founder of this religion as opposed to thinking that um, uh, we'll go to hell if we have anything except um, pure adoration or something like that, right? I think that's part of the beauty of this practice is it allows us to wonder and to have ambivalence and questions about it. So we go to Mick, and then. Um, I notice some of the questions or the conversations. I notice that I, they don't touch me because I, I thought for several minutes here, and I haven't thought this through. It's probably not quite accurate that the Buddha is like a footnote to the mm-hmm. teachings, in my mind. It, 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 I, I find it interesting. I wanted to come here to find out what we could find out about the Buddha. I didn't think, I think I've concluded we don't know much more than I thought we did, which wasn't much. And um, therefore, I, my curiosity and to take the course, uh, why did these things get told about the Buddha and what were the political aspects that had these things said? And what were the contrary groups that were saying that's not true and this is true? That is where the reality is for me. 
Uh, and it seems to me, unfortunately, that the Buddha, at least for me, is sort of lost in history. Hmm. I think that's an excellent point, Mick. Right, that all of us um, have our own relationship with them, but we could still be a practitioner here, even having this feeling like, oh, I'm not sure, whatever, whatever, this Buddha person. And I also loved that you said that he was a person in a context. It wasn't like a, a divine entity that doesn't have causes and conditions. Instead, he was in a particular location and in a particular time. And we can learn things about that time and location, but that influences what we know about him and the way that he behaved. And did he make, I mean, I speak with an Islamic group, and I'm, along with Burgett, take the Buddhist position among all these other religions when we're speaking. And I regularly say, and I, after we've talked today, I'm sort of wondering whether what authenticity there is to this, that I, I say that the Buddha... Uh, never claimed to be divine, that I'm pretty clear on. Uh, he said that I'm an ordinary person, and you, any of you, can do exactly what I've done. I don't know if there's any grounding for that in some kind of scripture. Sure. And I don't know where I picked it up, but I notice that I say it regularly. <laughs> I would say that what you're saying is kind of the hallmark of Theravada Buddhism, especially here in the West, in this idea that uh, the Buddha is a human, just like we are, and he has capabilities that we have. He may have been an extraordinary person, extraordinary human, but he was a human nevertheless. There's plenty of schools of Buddhism who will say he was um, more godlike. But that's not what this, what we're practicing here in the West. There are um, some that will say that, that he is more godlike. <coughs> concrete question to ask. Is there any physical evidence of his existence? This is what we have. It's that um, King Ashoka was um, 200 BCE or 250 BCE, I'm not sure, around there, about 200 BCE, life that we believe, the scholars believe that the Buddha died 486 BCE. So there's 150 years or so after the death of the Buddha. King Ashoka um, wrote on pillars, stone pillars, giant, giant stone pillars. There's quite a number of them throughout uh, India. And he talks about a sage and he, um, on these pillars, these edicts, and there, um, some of what's written on there as part of the teachings of this sage are very, very, very similar to some of what's in the Pali Canon. So that's the, what we're assuming, that, okay, we have this physical evidence, this piece of stone that has this written on here, and we know the age of that, and we're assuming they're talking about the Buddha, who was few hundred years over there. So that's the what we have. And that's, but the date for Ashoka may be a little bit different, and maybe there was some other religious person who was just like the Buddha. And, you know, so that, I think it's as good as we're going to get. <laughs> yes, Robert, did you have a... Or I think, Kim, you had something too, right? Or, yeah. Okay. So... Um, this is more of a question, and, and uh, 
Doesn't the Buddha um, give Ananda some cues prior to his um, taking Parinibbana that if Ananda responded in a certain way, the Buddha would have lived much longer and taught for much longer? And, and then doesn't he tell Ananda that he messed up and didn't answer right? Absolutely. So this is the part of the story that happens a little bit before where I started. And part of the reason why I started the story is because it's a little bit odd. Just briefly, the story is that um, Buddhas, Gautama Buddha, can live for a, and then there's this Pali word that nobody quite knows how to translate. So some translate it as eon, some translate it as lifetime, some people translate it as century, but it's this certain uh, measure of time that Buddhas can live for this duration of time if they're asked three times to do so. And it was supposed to be Ananda's job to do this. So the Buddha gives a hint to Ananda that he's supposed to ask, but he doesn't. And this happens a number of times. In the, that's how the story is. And then the Buddha says to Ananda, he says, The fault is yours, Ananda. I gave you hints on all these locations, and he lists all these cities. But you didn't ask me to live longer, so I'm going to die now. So we have Mara. How's that for laying a trip on you? Poor Ananda. Poor Ananda. Poor guy. I felt so bad for him. It's really, I feel a little bit heartbreaking. He's been his attendant for 25 years. And, and he loves the Buddha. And he loves him, you're right. How would he know? How would he know? He wasn't fully enlightened. And Ananda wasn't fully enlightened, so he didn't know. Right. The story actually says that Mara has um, taken over Ananda's mind so that Ananda is not able to know that the Buddha has given him a hint that he should ask him to live longer. The way I, hello, yeah. Uh, the way I take this is, I, I think immediately of, well, that's just written and some way gotten into the scriptures by somebody that really didn't like Ananda, so they held him up for ridicule. I mean, it doesn't sound characteristic of what the Buddha would say to anybody. I mean, to to a close devotee, yes. certainly not. You're absolutely right, and there's even scholars who have a whole theory about this, and it's uh, the. F- followers who were not the followers of Mahakasapa. And they were, um, in order to make Mahakasapa look better, this is a person who only appears at the very end of the Buddha's life and has a minor role, but um, they want to make Ananda look bad because they want their favorite uh, student to look good. So they inserted it in. Politics. Politics. So so a Kim somewhere in no, there or do, are you okay? Okay. So this reminds me in response to Mick's comment, this reminds me <laughs> of the story when the Buddha asks Sinanda what part of the holy life does Sangha play? And Ananda responds, Venerable Sir, the holy life plays fifty percent or something like that. And the Buddha's response is, no, no, Ananda, you've messed up again. It's a hundred percent. 
I love the story, but it's like Ananda becomes the the fall guy. The fall guy, but the the the, the teaching comes through. So Ananda serving a role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Prototype. yeah. A prototype. Well, you've built up my curiosity so much that I wish you. <laughs> So before we forget, I'd like to ask you three times to live to be a (laughs) hundred. Please live to be a hundred. Please live to be a hundred. Please live to be a hundred. Thank you, Jim. (laughs) So we have um, two minutes left. Is there anybody, is there anything that you feel like you would like to say in order for it to feel complete, for it to feel like uh, we could close this day or... Mm, you're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, well. We teach for 16 weeks. The same material, basically, obviously, very expanded, but right from the same sutras? Yeah, so we um, are looking at, like, we'll take, like, two suttas and really look at them and then discuss them, and then, yes, and... Yeah, it's quite something. It's been something for me. I'll say this because we're um, looking at, um, for those of you who are familiar with this, we're looking at a lot of the books in the Kudaka Nikaya. That is the fifth book in the of the Nikayas. And some of these haven't been translated into English. They're just, we don't, nobody really cares. We don't study them so much. And we're like poking around and like, oh, what's in there? So for me, it's been really interesting, like, to, to look at these things that aren't usually part of our studies or... No, sorry, we're not reading the Pali. We're reading secondary authors who, are, who have read the Pali, who are describing them and talking about them or something like that. We're not actually reading. Lots of the other things, we're, everything we're, is we're reading in translation. Okay, well, thank you all. It's uh, been delightful today, and um, thank you for sharing. I asked a lot for you guys to kind of participate and share, and uh, a deep bow of gratitude to all of you. And um, if you're interested in the these uh, list of lists, the 37 Wings of Awakening, I did have a handout, because at one time we were talking about and um, on the other side, I have the Buddha's first teaching. Because if we had time, we were going to go over his first and his last. So if you want this handout, you're welcome to it. And if you have any questions, you're um, welcome to come up and ask me. Thank you.